This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9 at the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury and I'm sitting in for Jeff Sandu. Be nice. Uh, not a phrase we often associate with Culture Pop's Matt Armitage, but uh, we're here. It's Friday, so, you know, what the heck. Uh, you can't say BFM isn't willing to give people a chance. Should technology companies be nicer and act more ethically? That's the question Matt is going to fail to answer this week. Uh, let's get to it. It's time to Matt Splain. Um, no killer robots this week. Uh, we finally finished this big data and brain hacking stuff. Uh, it kind of freaked me out a little bit last week. Yeah, hey Rich. Hello. Um, no, I mean we we ended last week talking about having chips implanted in your brain. That's right. right yes. Yeah. Um, and that those chips might contain artificial intelligence. So mm-hmm. there was that idea that you might actually have two, two separate. Brains. Well, yeah, two separate personalities. Yes. In fact, inside your head, talking to each other. Um, and you asked me if that kind of thing keeps me awake at night. I did. And it doesn't. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm looking forward to the future. That doesn't mean I'm looking forward to everything that's going to happen, but does mean that, you know, I don't want to keep things as they are. Uh, are you excited about the future? I am excited about what comes next. I know that some of it's going to be good, some of it's going to be bad. You know, that's the story of human history. Um, and I don't think that's going to change. You know, we make good decisions, we make terrible decisions. Mm. And we like to think that we uh, learn from the decisions. But generally speaking, we don't learn anything at all. True. We're just as likely to repeat uh, our failures as we are the successes, or just to ignore absolutely everything and do something completely different. Indeed. You know, all of the traits that make us destructive also make us creative. It's it's part of the same thing. We don't just spawn, eat and die. We've evolved sort of slightly beyond that bit. stage. <laughs> um, but with that comes chaos. You know, we are a chaotic species and we don't really have much idea of what kind of outcomes that the chaos is going to bring before we get started. You're not just trying to scare us, Matt. It can sometimes be difficult to put innovation and technology into a context. Um, So the last few weeks, I've been trying to sketch a line from the way commercial companies treat our data Mm. to the rights of sentient machines in the future. And that's not a straightforward or even a really obvious journey. But it's not something that I'm choosing to try and scare people. Uh, I think the biggest danger we face is just sleepwalking into this future where we accept how other people want to define the technology and innovation Mm. we see. You know, there is rarely just one way to use something, but when you see things communicated or presented by companies, it often looks as though their way is the only way that something is supposed to be used. And certainly we're not saying that if you listen to this show, then it's going to give you all the tools you need to determine how the future is going to roll out for you. But with a bit of luck, it does make it clear to people that there are options, that they do have choices. They don't have to accept someone else's vision of the future. And there are ways that they can, you know, play a role in shaping and guiding the future in ways that potentially are going to be more beneficial to them. You're trying to scare us into being nicer, aren't you? Yeah. Well, I mean, you say that, but that is actually one way that technology could go. Um, We're seeing social credit systems being rolled out in countries like China, where you are actually rewarded with with points for being a good citizen. Like technology nudging us into acting in certain ways. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, they're 
can be a lot of issues when these things come into conflict. What is good for society is not always best for the individual. And that kind of scheme could be set up as a way to control people rather than to empower them, especially when you're scored not just on your own behavior, um, but according to the behavior and profile of the people who are in your social circle. Mm. Then you start to set up a very kind of stratified society where social mobility is decided along the lines of social media patronage. And I bet no one expected to hear the phrase social media patronage when they got up this morning. Uh, so you want to talk about social credit, the idea of uh, us being nicer to each other. Well, I'm not going to go there so much today because we talked about that a little bit uh, a few months ago. I'm going to have a look at another side of the uh, ethics and social responsibility debate and have a look from the, the more kind of corporate side. Part of the reason I'm doing this is because I had a conversation with a friend a few weeks ago and he was asking me why I thought that tech companies didn't act more ethically. Uh, and at the time, I thought it was a bit like asking why a triangle has three corners. Uh, you know, they act like that because they can. And why should we expect them to act any differently? But over the course of the series on data, I started to think that, you know, maybe my view was a bit simplistic and that this is a topic that warrants maybe a bit more discussion and uh, examination. So this is more about uh, taking a look at why technology companies behave in certain ways. Yeah. And also why we have such high expectations of them. Uh, you know, we hear a lot of the business stories, whether they're good stories or bad stories. But we don't really know why companies act the way they do. We find out what they do, but we don't necessarily understand the, the reasons behind it. We know that they'll present a face that is socially responsible. Um, so you balance that with the positive things like their campuses and their social outreach programs and the fact that they are amongst the most sought after places to work. Mm. But then we hear stories about profits channeled through shell companies offshore. We hear about cultures of discrimination. So today and next week, I thought we could have a look at two things, the kind of consumer-facing social responsibility aspect. Yes, I said consumer-facing. And also the ethics of the products themselves, because that's also a big area of concern. What happens uh, when you're developing a piece of technology that causes harm or a technology that is conceived for a positive or beneficial purpose is then used in a negative way? All right, let's start with this clip. This is Anil Dash, uh, the respected tech blogger and the CEO of Fog Creek Software, uh, speaking at the Aspen. Spent Ideas Festival uh, last year for the Atlantic magazine. We're already starting to see the signs that trust in tech is eroding very quickly. The average citizen is starting to feel more and more like, I'm not sure that I feel good about all the ways that technology is interacting with my life. Technology is already reshaping things in a way where the laws become obsolete. And certainly the tech leaders realize now that if you're the CEO of a major tech company, you are a political figure, whether you choose to be or not. That, of course, seems to be part of the impulse behind why Mark Zuckerberg is out there campaigning. What it means is he's got to be thinking about what the political impact of Facebook is on the world and what it means to be in his position. And that's good. We want to encourage people to be thinking about you know, their role in society and their role in how governance and law evolve. We're just starting to see the first efforts to put a set of frameworks or checklists around technology so we can evaluate them. You're seeing the sort of consumer report style model where people are saying this is everything from the environmental impact of the servers that run this service 
to the human rights aspects of whether this company discloses information to governments or protects people's privacy and security. Is my information secure? What's their track record on keeping my passwords private and not getting hacked? We need to bring that same model, that same mindset into when we evaluate technology. It's like, if I buy this and I use it every day and I put all my personal data and information into it, is that gonna result in something that makes me feel better about myself and it's gonna make me feel good about my place in the world and it's gonna make me feel secure going forward about the way my private information is used. Everybody loves technology and if we're gonna be the industry that everybody pats on the back and rewards, then we've got an obligation society to be worthy of all that praise. Although that was filmed uh, quite a long time before the current issues around data and Facebook, it's quite a neat summary of where we are with technology at the mm. moment. Uh, there's quite a lot packed into that uh, two minutes. A lot of it's pretty self-explanatory, but I'll try and tackle the areas that were maybe a little light on explanation. I think one of the main issues I have with that clip is that it finishes by saying that tech CEOs have to be responsible, but it doesn't really point to the reasons why right. they should be responsible uh, or why we should expect them to be responsible. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm not sure that I have an answer to that either. I'm generally fairly cynical about these things. I have pretty low expectations, and even those expectations rarely seem to be met. What about that part where Anil Dash talks about the erosion of trust? And I'm wondering whether the technology is having a, a positive influence. Certainly. I mean, we've heard a lot in the media this year about the Silicon Valley backlash. And even before the current issues with Facebook, we were starting to see the evidence of the tech giants becoming slightly out of touch. You know, you don't have to Google very far to find stories about tech companies that contribute very little to the local economy. They they might have, you know, a, a three or four or five billion dollar campus, but they give very little back to the local communities. So you have local businesses that see little or no patronage from the staff of these firms because everything is catered for them on site. And deals that mean very little money in local taxes back into the surrounding neighborhoods. While pressure on housing is forcing out long-term residents, especially in terms of the, the rental sector, as prices go up and up. Is there a, a genuine sense of resentment then? Of course. Um, one of the big social movements in the US is the anti-gentrification movement, um, but it's much wider than people who are being misplaced by high-paid programmers. Especially with uh, younger generations, I think I've seen it from the talks and interactions that I've done in the public recently, People recognize how pivotal technology and social media companies are to today's lives, but they resent how little power they have to influence or act outside those structures. And I can completely understand that. You know, that's why we talked about this topic quite a few times on the, the show over the past few months. But we've also talked about the ways that people can make a difference. Today, I think, is subtly different because we're asking what actually makes companies behave better. All right, let's just uh, take a break then. Of course, you are tuned in to uh, BFM 89.9. This is Matt Splained. We're talking about being nice. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Bureaucratic failures multiply. BFM 89.9.
BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. I'm sitting in for Jeff Sandu, of course. I've got Culture Pop's very own Matt Armitage here in the studio. It is Matt Splained. We're talking about being nice. Now, we were talking about uh, trust and resentment when it comes to tech companies. Are our expectations too high? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways they are. Uh, we seem to have expectations for technology companies that we don't seem to have for what we think of as traditional companies. Mm. When we see uh, an oil company embroiled in an environmental disaster, we don't immediately think, oh, how did that happen? Right, as in we acknowledge that tragedy and the horror of those accidents or situations, but we're not really surprised by them. Exactly. You know, we see it as part of the risk. If you make dangerous chemicals, they're probably going to spill into a river or onto the ground at some point. You know, no system is perfect. And the way companies have run can make those events more or less likely. So ideally, we want catastrophic events not to happen, but it is part of the risk of manufacturing the product. We seem to feel more shocked that there might be, uh, say, sexism or discrimination in one of the new economy companies than in a traditional or an old economy company, which is weird because it's as though we imagine entirely different species of people work in these different sectors. Yeah. Do you, do you think we imagine that the tech industry has uh, purer and more noble goals? Well, yeah, I think Google has a lot to blame for this. I mean, you know, in a tongue-in-cheek sense, because we've bought into their whole idea of don't be evil, right. the idea of technology, don't be evil. But that's really at odds with the whole idea of disruption, which is the idea of moving fast and breaking things. Yeah. The things that get broken are entire industries, they are communities, they are laws. And I don't think we were prepared for the social cost of the technology industry. And I think that's something we're only really coming to terms with now. And part of that realization I think, is behind the tech backlash sentiment. Uh, it's something that the tech industry itself, I think, has been almost entirely unprepared for. So that's another topic then we should get into. Uh, who are they breaking things for? Well, to use the old world analogy, I think that's probably hitting the nail on the head or uh, easing the silicon from the chip, if you want a more <laughs> up-to-date <laughs> response. I know I'm terribly cheesy. Oh I have to stop doing this. Um, that was part of the conversation I had with my friend. You know, if someone starts a, a grocer's shop or a plumbing supplies company, we don't ask them if they're doing it for the public good. Right. You know, we don't ask a diamond mining company what its motivation is. We already know it's there to make money. It's not trying to fulfill a social mission to put a diamond on every finger. Yeah. We have this weird disparity that uh, technology is generating these immense IPOs for companies that make no money. Yet, for some reason, we don't think that the founders of these companies are motivated by money. Because these are the same founders who have become overnight billionaires. Exactly. You know, we have to get past the idea that if you wear a hoodie and sneakers to a board meeting, then, you know, you're out to save the world. I would suggest anyone uh, who's interested in going behind the scenes of this subject, uh, they can read uh, Disrupted by Dan Lyons. He's a former tech editor at Newsweek who went to work at a startup based in Boston. It's hilarious and it's also frightening. It goes to show how much of what we know about the technology industry is just PR and marketing gloss. Mm. Beneath the surface, it's chaos and people who are making it up as they go along. Which brings us right back to your beautiful chaos idea. Because you don't know what <laughs> outcomes that chaos will bring about. Uh, if you get a bunch of 20-somethings who start a company with some friends, and by some miracle that company explodes in popularity... 
and suddenly has thousands and thousands of employees, you're going to have some problems. Uh, we don't really look at bureaucracy as being a good thing, but big companies need a certain amount of red tape and regulation mm. because amongst those thousands and thousands of employees, you'll have great people, terrible people, and a really huge amount of average, average people. people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those people are not all going to get along. Uh, if, if a bunch of frat boys start a company, you're going to have to wait a long time before they decide that frat boy doesn't make for a healthy corporate culture. You right. know, It may take a while before they've burnt through all the venture capital money and come to the conclusion that beer pong tables are not the ideal <laughs> backdrop to extracting money from clients. I mean, that's more about internal culture. Uh, why, why do we have high expectations of the way they be behave toward us? Well, like I said, um, partly because we've bought into the don't be evil myth. Um, but when you look at a lot of the big tech companies, you know, Bill Gates is a money guy. Yeah. Steve Jobs was a money guy. Those guys were great at marketing and branding. The product guys were always somewhere in the background. Uh, look at Tim Cook. He's a supply chain logistics guy. Mm. And I'm not saying this in any way in a negative way, um, because those people were able to use their knowledge to build really successful companies and great brands. It seems odd to me that we don't expect Mark Zuckerberg to act in exactly the same way. To maximise profits for himself and the investors. Yeah, um, because Facebook is not a registered <laughs> charity. Um, some of the other social networks, for all the money they make, you might as well register them as <laughs> charities. So why, why do we feel so let down? Because I think we have a much more personal relationship with the product. You know, it's hard to get emotionally invested in a jar of coffee. And I suppose part of it is also down to the whole brand evangelism thing. In a very real way, Facebook is Mark Zuckerberg. Mm. Apple is mostly Steve Jobs and a little dash of Tim Cook. Bill Gates stepped away from Microsoft years ago, yet it's still hard to think of the two as being separate. Yeah. Um, I like Satya Nadella, but he's Microsoft's CEO. He's not the personification of the, the brand. Right. So when that idolatry works, it's really powerful. When it doesn't work, you get companies that have to eject their founders because of the, the risk of the brand becoming toxic. Why do you think this current backlash has caught the tech industry so much in the back foot then? I think the, the manufacturing tech companies have been insulated from that a little bit um, because except when it comes to making really stupid stuff like walled garden juice blenders and smart hairbrushes, you know, they, they, they live in the, the public eye. I think the consumer goods market, both in and out of the technology industry, has had to come to terms with customers who are more demanding and vocal. Right. So it's seen those companies putting on a much friendlier face, looking at their environmental footprint, their hiring policy, and the quality of the, the goods they sell. All right. Does it matter if the companies are only doing it to quieten the public then? Not really, because it's about the bottom line for them. Um, of course, you know, you're going to get some senior management staff in any big company who have their own passions and priorities. So you see Apple being much more proactive and supportive of LGBT rights under Tim Cook. And that's very much a personal decision that mm. is driving company policy. Ultimately, it doesn't matter if the company is being nice for the sake of being nice or because it's forced to be nice. Um, that's one of the reasons we've heard so much about shareholder activism over the past few years. Mm. There are quite a few ethically minded hedge funds and unit trust providers. And by buying up blocks of stock in companies, they can start to introduce new policies at the boardroom level. You don't think this is so much the case for the service-oriented tech companies? Well, I'm going to start uh, banging my gong again now, so you might want to put your hands mm. over your ears to block out. 
out the ringing noise. Uh, we have a different relationship with the companies that give us something for nothing, or at least the ones that appear to be giving us something for nothing. Yeah. It's been interesting uh, this week to note the departure of the second founder of WhatsApp, uh, Jan Coom, uh, from the company this week. Uh, it's been widely reported to be down to issues over encryption and privacy with the, the parent company, Facebook. Yeah. Uh, and WhatsApp's fellow co-founder, Brian Acton left Facebook last year and actually announced his support for the Delete Facebook campaign on yeah, Twitter back that. in March, which yeah. is quite incredible. So you're starting to see this schism where founders are reacting negatively to the direction that their publicly owned or bought out companies are being taken. So to go back to something I've said before, we are users rather than customers of a lot of these services and companies. And that means they listen to us in a very different way. Because they meet their bottom line by selling us to third parties. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to make a case that they're like slave traders or anything. But broadly speaking, yes. You know, if um, Facebook or most of these freemium companies were farms, we'd be the livestock, not the supermarket. They do what they need to do to keep us fed and healthy, but only because they have to sell us on to the supermarket yeah. later on. You know, nobody's going to eat me if I'm all grisly and tough and diseased. The supermarket wants me plump and tender, so, and preferably not chlorine-washed. <laughs> so they're surprised because the cattle are lowing? Well, yeah, exactly. The, the farmer doesn't usually expect the livestock to complain. So this is a new scenario for the tech companies. <laughs> and as we're seeing, they're having trouble adjusting. You know, you can move fast and break things, but that really only works for the short term. Eventually, you have to live with the things that you break. And if you break the trust of the people who use your site or service, then, you know, you're putting your livelihood on the line. All right. Should, uh, should then we be waiting for lawmakers to jump in on our behalf? Well, that's a, an obvious thing for lawmakers to do, right? But it's another reason that the, the Facebook story has been so revealing over the last few weeks. Um, it proved a lot of the things that we suspected, that lawmakers opt for self-regulation in technology, partly because they don't have a clue where to start with mm. regulating the new economy. In many cases, it's not a small gap. It's actually a fundamental one, um, not just a generational or language issue. It's the very basics people don't grasp. Uh, at the one end, you have, I think, Vladimir Putin saying a few years ago uh, that he doesn't watch the internet, or Donald Trump talking about the cyber as though that's actually a thing. Uh, and the Facebook congressional hearings showed that, you know, this same lack of understanding is pretty widespread and common amongst the political class, who, broadly speaking, are male and over 50, pretty much wherever you look in the world. So the answer to the question is is no. Uh, some countries or blocks like the EU will be more forward-thinking and conceptually better armed, but don't bank on anyone else shaping technology in your image. This is another one of the things we've got to do ourselves. Yeah, because it's never single-handed. Um, laws play a part, and so do we. Uh, it was public outrage and changing tastes rather than laws that ended the use of fur in most fashion houses. For sure, the use of data and the rights of uh, individual users should be legislated. But Facebook isn't a chemicals company. Twitter isn't selling arms. Mm. You're not going to die of an overdose of Snapchat. Mm -hmm. um, so it would be perfectly understandable if lawmakers thought eradicating lead in water supply was a better use of national resources than making sure a disreputable tech company can't buy the photo of banana toast that you took this morning. Right. You know, which means it really is down to you and me and our listeners and all the people who aren't listening to hold these companies to account. All right, then. Uh, what should we do? 
make some noise. Um, tech companies really don't like it when you make noise. It takes the shimmer off the uh, platinum slicked image. Um, people that great and chaotic mass are one of the reasons that a lot of garment companies started vetting their third-party suppliers more closely because the customers were demanding they do something. Yeah. Um, inaction hurt their bottom line more than spending money to improve conditions. So tell the tech companies what you want. Remind them that we own our own lives. You know, that's what hashtags were invented for. Um, I'm definitely not saying insult them or call them names. That's not helpful. Technology companies only have access to our data because we give it to them. So think about what you share. Uh, delete Facebook or Twitter or whatever if you really can't stand what they're doing. That's a bit further than I would go personally. Limit what you're willing to share. Put different things on different services. The less complete a picture any one service has of you, the harder it is for them to sell. And also find out who owns the tech services that you use. Are they a subsidiary of one of the giants? Do those companies share information? Most of that stuff is easy to find out in a couple of quick searchable steps. Okay, uh, so what then happens if we disrupt their business model? Then we have to be prepared to do what it takes to repair it. If you value a service, you have to be prepared to cover their commercial costs so that that company can make a profit. If we want more control over our content, and that means limiting the money that companies can make from third parties, then obviously we have to make up that shortfall. Um, that's it. That's my gong banging again. Um, you know, you could try and convince the US government to nationalize Facebook and make it a public service. Um, but even if they did nationalize it, that wouldn't work out for most of us because we're not US citizens. Yeah. So they would either exclude us or make us pay anyway. And we'd still have no control over how our data is used. And, you know, you have to remember as well, the standards we hold others to, we have to hold ourselves to. When we move fast, we break stuff as well. And that stuff is not going to work again until we help to fix it. And then once we fix it, we can get on with the important business of being nice. For those, uh, for these and other unpopular opinions, you can head over to culturepop.com where you can also find out how to bring a bit of matsplaining to your company. You are, of course, listening to Matsplained here on BFM 89.9, the business station. Oh, don't go anywhere. Coming up very shortly, we've got Geek Squawk here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.